This is Breakthrough Radio. Welcome to part two of Making Sense of Chaos. I'll tell you straight up, I actually don't want to talk about this conversation. I don't want to talk about this topic. It's, it's actually annoying. I've, I've wasted literally days or weeks of my life looking at this topic and putting this whole thing together. And I've got hours of recording to just make sense of this thing. But I don't want to talk about it. I will. I will. It's what I've committed to. But what I'd rather talk about, I'd rather talk about how amazing human beings are. I'd rather talk about, you know, what it looks like looking to the future. What does it look like achieving our goals? What does it look like when a human being realizes their potential? What does it look like when a human wakes up? What does it look like when a human's happy? That's what I really want to talk about. That's what I want Breakthrough Radio to be about. I want it to be about the happiness. I want it to be about people. I want it to be about these wonderful creatures that we are called human beings. Yeah, so from that aspect, I think this is why this whole conundrum that I'm busy dealing with or that we're all looking at now is it's, it's really bothering me because it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. When we look at it from a particular point of view, I mean, even my mind um, is starting to calm down now, but you know, and I know why. And for the most part, you know, humans don't want to hear how wonderful they are or humans struggle to hear how wonderful they are because of all the shit that goes on. And invariably, because of the common, average, everyday human of how we behave. And it includes me. It includes all of us. We are both. We are both wonderful, fantastic, powerful, and amazing. And we can be, wow, we can be absolutely horrible. We really can be. My exposure and my experience to different kinds of individuals who are really doing well. I mean, they're doing well for themselves. But damn it, do we know how to treat each other badly. Yo, we know how to treat each other so badly. You know, that's more of our human nature. We just know how to it's almost like we sit on the top of the hill and we just sit there spinning our days trying to figure out how to be shitty to each other, how to get one over over each other. So until we actually get to that place, until we get there, where the conversation can be had about how wonderful we are, about how we truly can get over our own shit, how we really can get past all the noise and all the stories and, and the rubbish which really keeps us, keeps us so lost, it keeps us so stuck. You know, maybe when we get past that, we can have a, we can have a real conversation. And I know that's what most of us want. It's what you want. It's what I want. And part of what I'm carrying, I'm carrying a conversation of today. It's the same conversation where I see a normal human being not being a human being, where they treat each other, where we treat each other, like we are literally the enemy from another tribe. And on one hand, we are. That's part of what we are. It's, it's, these are the worlds we come from. This is the place that we've come from. So we're carrying this ancient idea, this ancient hardware in our heads. We're just carrying this thing and we still don't realize it because our eyes are open, because we have language, because we can communicate in a much more complex way other than just clicks and noises and whistles and grunts. You know, we really think that we fucking got it. We really do. And today I asked someone, I asked them, can you just be a person? Can you just be a human? And they just behave like a machine. They literally behave as if a computer or as if some piece of paper is telling them what to do and how to behave. And to get more accurate behind this, to get more clear, they literally behave as if the piece of paper gives them permission to behave badly. That's what it finally came down to. So I do. I want to push forward in this conversation. I want to push forward into this topic because humans don't necessarily want to hear how wonderful and how amazing we are. And we actually don't want to have the conversation. We don't want to have the hard conversation until times are hard, until life really gets difficult, or until we actually hit the bottom, until we literally can put our finger out 
and we can scrape the bottom of the barrel and we can scrape the slime off the bottom of the barrel. It's only when we reach right at the bottom of the pond and we realize, hang on a second, this isn't where I want to be. And then suddenly they want to have the conversation. Suddenly they want to have the insight. Suddenly they want the miracle. I'm really, I'm really wrestling in my own mind of why can't we just have that conversation first? Why can't we have that conversation up front? Why can't we have that conversation ahead of time? The irony is, I know why. <laughs> or at least I know a few reasons why. And there's probably another thousand reasons why we don't have those conversations first. Why we need things to get really bad before we actually catch a wake up. You know, until we either get fired, reprimanded, scolded, uh, we have a breakup, a divorce, or anything like that. We wait until the times are unbelievably difficult. And then suddenly, you know, the, the brain cells grow together. Suddenly the brain cells touch and the, the electrical spark goes across those neurons and actually goes, oh, is this what you meant? Oh, why didn't you say so in the beginning? It's fucking irritating. Yeah. So the bottom line is we don't listen. I don't know what it'll take for us to listen. Part of the reason why I'm doing this broadcast is exactly that. Because when someone says to me one day, why didn't you say so before? Why didn't you say it like that the first time? Or why didn't you say this the first time? I did. I have. I've been saying it from the beginning. I'm hopping. And no matter how many times I walk in a room and I start off going, look, I really don't want to be uncomfortable here. So can we actually have an adult conversation? Everything is ignored until you become uncomfortable, until you actually show your mettle. Dealing with a World 5 today, uh, it just showed me how quickly that we can regress into a World 3. It was only until I actually dealt with them first on their level, and then secondly, dealing with them from a mature three point of view. It was only until they could see that I'm not going to back down. Hmm. Yeah. So that's essentially where I want to kick this off. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about people killing each other. I don't want to talk about how badly we behave towards each other. I don't want to talk about how big of an arsehole a human being can be. I don't actually want to talk about that. And as I said, I will. Because we need to. We need to get the gravity of this. We need an alternative. We need, we need another way. And until we actually have an option, until we've been shown that there really is an option, or even better yet, like a magic trick, until the magic trick gets called out, it's still a magic trick. People still perceive it as magic. So maybe we can do it both ways. We can call the magic trick out. We can see what the game is. And when we call it out and say, we can see what the game is. This is what the game is. And... Here is an alternative game. There's a brand new game in town. And maybe when we get to that point, maybe one by one, each of us humans can, can change an attitude, can change a point of view. And perhaps this is how this makes sense of chaos. And when people ask me, how does this make sense of chaos? How does looking at chaos from a developmental point of view or a developmental model point of view, how does it make sense of chaos? Well, if you start off, what is chaos? Chaos is just, things are just everywhere. And until we actually find a reference point and we can join a reference point to another point, until we start at a place, it will remain chaos. When we see it as chaos, it implies or suggests or just indicates that we do not see the order in it. We can't see the relationship in things. And from that point of view, it will constantly not make sense because nothing lines up. There's no relationship between anything. It's when we look at anything from a particular point of view, from a point of view that gives us bearings. It gives us a point of reference. And we can start at one point and then build the relationships between that point and build the relationships from that point. This is how we start to make sense of chaos. When we can start to build relationships between events 
and circumstances and things and just everything that's going on, when we can see the relationship between these things, especially between the events, the circumstances, the things that happen, the situations, when we can see how they're occurring, why they're occurring, and we've got a bearing on this, this is what starts to make sense out of it. Because it's not just random anymore. It's not chaotic anymore. It's not just impulsive anymore. It becomes more deliberate. It becomes more predictable. I mean, I actually heard it the other day. Someone said that humans are predictably irrational. It's quite a statement. When you have a path to follow which is connected to reality, not fantasy, not fantasy or wishing, but to something which is observable, something which is measurable, something which is tangible, this is what starts to make more sense. And when we see the worlds which humans operate in, and the way we operate within those worlds, all of the stuff makes sense. It doesn't fix the problem, and that's one of the issues. Even though we can make sense of all this stuff, this is what my mind is busy doing backflips and turning itself into a pretzel over. Even though we can make sense of the stuff, it doesn't necessarily mean that we solve the problem. It doesn't mean that the problem automatically just evaporates or goes away. It's a fucking problem. And it's annoying. It's annoying. Yeah. Anyway. During these past few weeks, as I've been compiling all of the recordings for this series, I happened upon another podcast which literally describes exactly what we're talking about here. I'm going to insert an excerpt from another podcast here. And what I've done is I've taken a podcast which is well over two hours and just cut it down. So I've edited it quite a bit. So I've cut it down to just under 36 minutes. And I'll urge you to listen to this perspective, listen to the podcast, just so that you can hear someone else's perspective on what I'm talking about and not just think, that this is my short-sighted view on the topic, or that the developmental model which we're busy using doesn't necessarily describe these situations. This is an insert from Impact Theory, which is run by Tom Bilyeu. And I've spoken about Tom before. If you haven't subscribed to his podcast, or if you haven't listened to Tom, sure, you're missing out. I really recommend that you subscribe and listen to Tom. And in this episode, Tom's guest is from a first world country, and he was asked to spend about 30 days above the Arctic Circle. And one of the main keys I want you to listen for, listen to his perspective on society or civilization before he left to go to the Arctic Circle, and then listen to his second experience of what civilization brings. And this is just to give you contrast, so that you don't just listen to my own voice busy droning over this podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I am here with journalist and author of The Comfort Crisis, Michael Easter. And I'm going to use words that you may not actually find comfortable. And so push back if ever I go somewhere that you're like, I actually don't see it that way. All right. People are getting super soft mm-hmm. and that there are consequences to that. What I'll call the mania of the culture wars is really about the fact that people aren't chased by a lion anymore. If you could just encapsulate for people what the comfort crisis is, and then we can dive into why I find it so interesting. Yeah, I think you're on to something. I don't use that language in the book, but it's, yeah, same thing. We're, we're on the same page here. So in The Comfort Crisis, I basically investigate how, as the world has become more and more comfortable in a variety of ways. So think of your average day. It's like air conditioned, your food is there. You don't have to chase down your food. You don't have to put any physical effort into your days. Mm. Uh, we've lost a lot of the things that make us healthy, not only physically, but also mentally, because to your point with the culture wars, it's like if your problem is that you got stuck in traffic or someone challenged your idea, 
instead of you got chased by a lion, that's that can do some stuff to your brain. Mm-hmm. That seems to um, we seem to get a little bit out of whack. So I look at that and to basically investigate that. I spent 30 some odd days in the Arctic and traveled the globe, met with uh, all these different researchers, uh, kind of looking at this idea and how it's affecting people mm-hmm. today. Why is it so hard? Like when you say, oh, we spent the time in the Arctic, it doesn't sound scary until you read the book and then you're like, fuck me. That does not sound, not only does it not sound fun, it doesn't sound safe. There were moments of uh, peril. Okay, so first of all, I'll tell you, I'll kind of walk people through uh, what it was like from the beginning. So to get to where we went, I had to take five planes. So you go from, you know, jumbo jet to slightly smaller jet. So I go from Vegas to Seattle to Anchorage, from Anchorage and kind of a smaller jet up to this town called Kotzebue. Kotzebue is like a 3,000 person little hamlet on the ocean above the Arctic Circle. From there, we get in a four-seater plane. This takes us 100 miles out onto the tundra. This four-seater plane is, I mean, it's just this rickety old thing. It's this old Cessna, right? Line, it's just horrifying. They drop us out, off out on the tundra. Another plane that's even smaller comes and gets us, right? Has to take us individually and ferry us out to a place even further out in the middle of nowhere. This is a plane that only seats two people. Mm. Till then, we're left there. Right, we are out in the middle, literal middle of nowhere. Um, and even in September, I mean, the temperatures are consistently below freezing, carried everything we needed to survive on our backs so that, you know, food, shelter, we're like hiking all day. Our packs are 80 some odd pounds. Okay, so recovering alcoholic, is this, are you wearing a journalism hat at this point or a recovering alcoholic hat? I think I'm always wearing both <laughs> all the time, right? I mean, so part of recovering from, alcohol for me at least is realizing that it's it's doing push-ups in the parking lot right like i always have to be conscious of that what does that mean it means it's uh it's always it's always in me right that you have the desire to drink yeah and obviously it fades a lot over time and but the like push-ups in the parking lot are a distraction or is that a metaphor push-ups in the parking lot are a metaphor for what the disease is doing it's always there right it's sort of like it's not like it just fades away right. it's ready to come get me mm-hmm. you know And, you know, I knew it was going to be physically hard, but I also thought that I'm probably going to learn some pretty deep things about myself Mm -hmm. as well. And maybe as a journalist, I can take what I learned and tell other people about that. The idea of learning something about yourself is really interesting. Have you thought at all about like how things are hidden from us? Like how in our own selves, there are things that we don't see and understand. Oh, totally. I mean, I think a big thing for me was, um, you know, when you get sober, you have to ask yourself some hard questions about why did you drink the way you Mm. drank? But I also think that, you know, that gene doesn't necessarily bloom unless you give it enough alcohol. So, you know, having to ask those, uh, ask those hard questions. And I think that going through the process of getting sober, it's sort of, I compared to like unpeeling an onion about yourself. It's like more will be revealed, you know, Mm. but you have to kind of go out and do different things that challenge you, that challenge your worldview um, in a lot of different ways because you, by never putting yourself in a position where you are uncomfortable, whether that is physically or mentally or with, you know, what you think to be true, you're not gonna, you're not gonna learn anything about yourself, right? And I think that in today's age, it's a lot easier to never be forced out of your comfort zone. Now, physically, that's very obvious, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you could take a thousand steps a day and live today, right? Like, Which 
I know what you mean when you say that, but we've gotten so sort of comfortable that people won't even understand that you mean that as a little. Yeah. Like that won't register as like, oh yeah, that's an astonishingly small amount of steps. Yeah. So uh, our ancestors, I think the average person um, takes about 4,000 steps a day. You look in at how, modern society? In or? modern society. So you look at how our ancestors lived, they exercised, they had to do 14 times more physical activity than us just to live. So obviously there's the physical element, right? Um, but also I think psychologically increasing with what you talked about with the culture wars. So if you look at young people today, especially so people born after 1990. And so this like idea of, of challenge in a lot of different ways gets removed because not only are you physically challenged, right? When you are going out doing stuff in the woods, but also like your, your worldview gets challenged. Think about interactions on the playground. I got punched in the face on the playground a lot. <laughs> I probably deserved it sometimes. And I learned something from Michael, that. Michael, that may right? say something about you. Yeah. Um, when that goes away, all of a sudden kids don't have challenges. And mm. so now you have this generation where because they have not been challenged, um, what they consider a challenge is something like, you know, I'm a professor at UNLV. So if they say something, you know, have a point and I push back on that. Mm. Well, all of a sudden that's kind of scary because you've never been punched in the that's face so on the playground, crazy. right? So that becomes scary. Like in my classes, I'll bring up stuff and no one wants to say anything because well, well, what if, you know, what if someone challenges me or like there's um, people, <laughs> younger people, especially, I think um, are a little more sensitive to mm. a lot of a lot of the stuff we're talking about here. And um, as a result of that, you see levels of anxiety and depression. They're higher in the generations born after 1990 than any other generations that came before them, like significantly. They're up like 30 and 50 percent. Jesus. Yeah, it's crazy. On that note, so we land, we're like in fucking bush country. We've got both the uh, journalism hat on and the recovering alcoholic hat on. Yes. And now what? what's your thinking at this point? Like, Yeah, but how do you, how do you train for more than a month in the Arctic, right? Mm. I mean, because there's so many factors that you can't train for. So, for example, one of the first things I learned when we get there is the ground is absolute hell to walk on in the tundra. I describe it as like a mattress that's covered in partially inflated basketballs. <laughs> it's like soft, the mattress area is soft, but then there's all these tundra tussocks. They're these balls of um, densely wound grass. And so where do you where do you step? You can either step on this mattress area that each of your feet sink in, each of your steps you sink in, saps your energy, or you can try and like balance on this ball of grass and maybe roll an ankle. So, you know, I could, so from there, you know, we set up camp and then it's like, we're hunting for 30 some odd days and it gets, uh, it gets pretty uncomfortable pretty quick, you know, because you learn every single thing we do takes effort. I mean, first of all, so you want water? Well, you got to hike down to that stream to get it. And by the way, that's also where the grizzlies hang out because they want to be around water. And they also know that, uh, other animals come down there to drink. So they'll, they'll ambush them. So you have to be really careful. So there's the physical stress of the hike down, getting water, and then having to hike the heavy bag back up to camp and also the psychological stress of like, Oh my God, this is where the grizzlies hang out, right. you know? Um, so everything and it's, it's freezing cold. We're above the Arctic circle. I get up there and it's just, my body was not ready for that. I'd had every single layer on like, right as we got out of that. And for people listening plane, to this, you're a pretty skinny dude. That actually hurt. I, I think in retrospect, I would have put on more weight in the form of fat. Mm. Cause I got up there. I'm six, 
one. I was probably a buck seventy oh, when I got up hi. there. And um, by the time I left, I was like one sixty. I'm actually surprised you didn't lose more weight after hearing all the crazy hiking that you guys did. Yeah, hiking doesn't capture <laughs> the <laughs> difficulty. I don't think. Again, I mean, the ground is so terrible, and we had time like after we after we hunted you have to pack the caribou out and then your bag is 110 whatever pounds and mm. you've got to hike it all the way back to camp i mean but that was by far the hardest thing i've ever done like easily um because not only again is there the physical stress but also the psychological stress and the weather the ground so bringing it back to sort of the overall idea of the book it's like think of how much our environments have changed right what i was doing out there was essentially daily life for essentially all of humanity, all of the time of humans. Dude, that's when I hear your book and I hear that statement and I think that people argue whether life has gotten better and people are actually saying, no, it hasn't gotten better. I'm just like, yo, I don't, I actually don't understand how people can computationally come to that sort of conclusion. I get if you say that there are trade-offs, it's a trade-off, forest bathing and getting back into the wilderness and the three day effect, which I'm sure mm -hmm. we'll talk about. Like all those things seem very, very real to me, but in terms of like safety and access to resources and not having to worry, like people, the, the thing you have to think about in terms of your survival, just I'm talking statistics, man. So argue with the math, not with me is overeating. Yes. Like that's going to be the problem, certainly in the developed nation. Oh yeah. Yeah. Heart disease and stroke are the number one killer of humans. And yeah, so they do polls. And I think it's either six or 12% of people polled in the United States think that the world is getting better. Think back even a hundred years. Mm. Kids were dying before five, like all the time. Think back a thousand years, 10,000 years. You gave a stat on Iceland, uh, the death rate of infants in Iceland. Do you remember the number? It's around 650 per thousand live births would die. That's the highest ever recorded. That's crazy. Yeah. So there's this idea I talk about in the book and um, it's called prevalence induced concept change, which is a really dorky way <laughs> of saying problem creep. So there's these two professors at Harvard and they're traveling to a conference, right? And they're in line for TSA. The beepers go off and they're like, you know, they think that this banana that you've packed in your bag is a Beretta. So they're going to tear that damn thing apart. You know, they frisk some old woman who can't see her walk because there's like a half filled bottle of water. They're just always looking for problems. And so they wonder if all of a sudden, like the scanners never went off ever. Everyone just obeyed the TSA rules 100%. What would they do? Would people just sail through without problems? And they didn't think so because the TSA's job is to find problems. They thought they would start searching for problems even when problems don't exist. So they do a study because there are these Harvard psychologists, they got a question, right? So now it's time to do a study. So this basically showed that as humans face fewer and fewer problems in our lives, we don't actually experience fewer problems. We just redefine what a problem is. And it's because as the world has gotten better, so think back even in a hundred years, we've got climate control now. We've got cars, we've got cell phones, mm. we've got all the streets are paved. How many people listening to this podcast work in a farm, work on a farm for a living and go out there and till it all day? Not many, right? You probably sit behind a desk. You're pretty safe, right? The world has clearly gotten better, but we don't actually see that because we, uh, our brain has this low level mechanism that's always running to find the next problem. And this made sense in our past, 
because if you're a hunter gatherer and you don't know where your food is coming from, you're not quite sure about shelter tonight. Life is actually dangerous. If you can just focus on problems all the time, that's going to give you a survival advantage. But in today's world <laughs> where arguably there's still problems in the world, don't get me wrong, but I think that overall things are pretty good. Mm. We don't actually see that. You know? Yeah. This is the problem with societal level experimentation is one, it's a bit like steering a boat. So you do something and there's a real delay before the boat starts moving. So yeah. then you're like, wait, was it this thing or this thing? I certainly am not smart enough to have predicted that it would create this comfort crisis problem. Mm -hmm. Not something that I would have seen coming. And by the way, I don't consider myself sort of a above any of the comfort crisis issues. This is not me passing judgment on other people. This is me going, yo, I want to live an optimal life for myself. And at a societal level, I want to make sure that people are set up to thrive. And I'm perfectly willing to look at my own behavior and say, ooh, there are some problems here. Like my life has been a journey of toughening up. So mm -hmm. I was not tough growing up um, despite getting uh, into not like big fights, but I got you know punched in the head or uh, one kid twisted my arm and dropped me to my knees when I thought I was like king shit. And that was like a real cool like <laughs> eye opening like, oh, wait a second. There are people that are way fucking tougher than me. Uh, and even now like that happened in grade school and that really left an indelible mark and so you begin to like navigate the world and you sort of find your lane and so i found a lane of comedy i was able to make people laugh and i got to the point where i wanted to take myself more seriously so anyway to get good at business I've, i had to realize whoa like i am not resilient i am not tough mm -hmm. i shy away from criticism because it hurts and it will send me into a multi-day spiral yeah but I had these grand ambitions. And mm -hmm. so finally, you know, through a long process, get to the point where I realize for me to actually achieve my goals, like I have to get back to sort of emotionally neutral as quickly as I can to realize how much suffering you can endure and that when you do that, you actually get stronger. I don't think I would have had success in business had I not taken control of my body. And you do that kind of stuff and you start to build that resilience. You lift the weights and you literally build calluses. You injure yourself and you build back from that. And you realize, oh, okay, like yeah. there are, I can do things that make me stronger. And that then led me to go, well, if this works for my body, how much does it work for my mind? And can I get tougher in business? It was nothing short of life-changing. Yeah. I have empathy for people that were raised with the best of intentions, but not the best of results. Mm -hmm. How do they get out of it? Well, I think that, um, people just like yourself, everyone does well when we're challenged. Now we've removed challenge from our life in a lot of different ways. Right? So I think when you look back at, um, sort of past societies, ancient cultures, tribes, they all had a rite of passage for young people. Right? So the idea, and it's all the same basic framework. Uh, we have a young person, this person is at point A in their life and we need to get them to point B because point B is where they can really help the tribe. Can you define point A and point B? Point A is sort of, um, seen as like youthful childhood. You're still kind of clinging to your parents. You're not quite as confident and competent as you could be. Point B is like you are officially transitioned into adulthood more or less. You're able to go out on your own and really uh, provide, take on a family, whatever now, it Have you be. looked at this closely enough to know if it's you're clinging to your parents or you're clinging to your mother? It's usually mother. Yes. Yeah. It's usually mother. Yeah. I mean, there's some really interesting shit there, but keep yeah. going. We'll, we'll circle back to that. <laughs> For sure. What these uh, societies would do is usually send the young person out into the wild 
to do something really hard. So for example, the Maasai had uh, a lion hunt where a young warrior would be given a shield and a spear. Said, all right, go get a lion for us. By themselves. By themselves, yes. And were some of them eaten? Yes. Uh, so the Maasai <laughs> cultural website has this hilarious line that says, many young warriors have been lost to lions over the years. It's just like so understated. You're like, oh my God. Um, the Nez Perce Indians would uh, send uh, young men out onto the Columbia River Plateau. They would, wouldn't give them food or water, and they would just sort of like pray and fast for you know a week, around a week. Um, the Aboriginal tribe, they would uh, send young men out on walkabout. And so the idea is that you are exiting the comfort of home, right? You are going into this trying realm of discomfort. And danger, quite frankly. Discomfort, danger. You're going to get put in a position where you want to quit, you think you're going to fail. You're going to have you know these how real old challenges. People were when they were doing this. Uh, anywhere from like 12 to 18, typically. And by going out there and you know really having to rough it, they often learn something about themselves that they are more capable than they thought because they hadn't got put in a position before where, man, I'm facing some true peril. I don't know if I can make this, but by coming out the other side, they go, oh, actually, I'm capable of more than I thought. I might have sold myself short on some things. Then they can return back to the tribe and they have this newfound confidence and competence and they've sort of transitioned into that point B that we want them at. Mm. So this may be the thing I am most fascinated by in life, quite literally. So I read Joseph Campbell's mm -hmm. The Power of Myth and it changed my life forever. Yeah. What I took away from the book was, hey, people have gotten soft. There are no rites of passage anymore. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that so many marriages fail is there's no transition from youth to adult, unmarried to married. What do I do to overcome that to make sure that the commitment is more interesting to me than that? And yeah. so I decide I'm going to go through a ritualistic scarification as a part of getting married so that I am literally a different person the day before I get married and the day after. Yeah. And it will make sure that I go through some sort of ritual. I'm asking, okay, well, what can we learn from that? So in my book, I talk, about, um, I talk about the idea that we need to essentially introduce these metaphorical lions back into our life. And how do we do that? But also everyday humans can't always be measured. So this is where something like a rite of passage comes in. And the idea is that once a year, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do something really hard. Okay, well, what's really hard? Something that I think I truly have a 50-50 shot of accomplishing. True 50% shot. Uh, rule number two, back to the question about <laughs> the Maasai. Rule number two is don't die. So don't be dumb about mm. it, right? They've also done simple stuff like, hey, there's that mountain way in the distance. Think we can make it there in a day? I don't know. Maybe 50-50? All right, let's try. Along the way, you're going to get to this point, right? Where you're like, man, I have reached my limit. There's no way I can finish this. Like, I, I can't keep putting one foot in front of the other. I can't do this. But you're going to keep going either way. And then you're going to look back and be like, wait a minute. There's back there was where I thought my limit was. But I'm right here now. And if I'm selling myself short here, like where else in life am I selling myself short? Now, the idea is that we are mimicking these challenges that our environment used to naturally show us in the past. So in the past, yes, we had rite of passages, right? But we also had to do hard stuff all the time. This could be like a hunt. If you're out of food and you need to hunt, man, you need to, you need to do that thing. This is a real challenge. You might have to move from your summering to wintering grounds and a storm comes in. 
And each time we would do one of those things, we would learn something about ourselves, what our potential was, and we would grow as humans. We would become more confident, more competent. We would get like spiritual satisfaction from that even, right? And now we've completely wiped not only rites of passage, but even physical challenges out of our days. So we're not ever really shown what our true potential is. So for example, when you told me the Arctic, I don't know if I could do that, man. Like that terrifies me. Eh, bullshit. I love you, man, but that is a bunch <laughs> of bullshit. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. Of being born in this time and age where that seems pretty tricky. Now, if you were born 10,000 years ago, you would just call that life, <laughs> right? So I think we've become, uh, it's amazing all these comforts we have. There's nothing wrong with them. I think, we're, I think they're great. Like, absolutely, full stop. But if we never put ourselves in the position of true challenge, then we don't really learn something about ourselves and come out and be like, hell yeah, I could do that. Because when you have that attitude, all of a sudden the stuff that comes at us in modern life, it's just like, eh, you know, like I got stuck in traffic and I have to give this presentation in front of people. Well, I survived a, you know, a hurricane in the Arctic like a year ago. So I think this will be manageable. Right. And so I think we're just so removed from those environments that when they, we think about having to go back into that, it can be scary. Like I wasn't exactly thinking that I could do it when I first went out there, but I did. And now I've come out on the other side and it's like, shit, man, you're a lot cooler than I thought you were, mm. <laughs> you know? It's actually a really interesting idea. So you've got um, the problem creep mm -hmm. and then you've got comfort creep where it's spending 30 plus days in the Arctic does not sound like my idea of a good time. Yeah. Um, when I think about comfort creep and I think about things in my own life, so I don't want to step away from my life, mm. which is uh, probably not smart. Like as I think about it and some of the key takeaways from your book, it's like I spend so much time thinking about making sure that I optimize. I optimize my life for joy. That's like my I'll call it fulfillment. That's probably a better way to think about mm -hmm. it. But you need to be joyful in your pursuit of fulfillment. Um, I'm so focused on optimizing my life for joy, but I'm also hyper aware that you shift in and out of these time periods in your life and things are different from one moment to the next. And so you don't want to be oblivious to the fact that this period of your life won't last forever. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to get to the next phase of your life and just be like, from this new frame of reference, my entire life seems like a mistake. So, you know, I try to be very, very thoughtful about that. Um, but yeah, the idea of comfort creep that you need to be very careful about what there on both sides that you can sink into whether it's drinking or something else yeah. and you're enduring something that's just like you're creating problems for yourself. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side where you're just allowing yourself to be too comfortable. Yeah, I think so. And look, it's the human brain loves routine, right? We evolved to, um, want to get in a routine because, in the past that used to keep us safe. If I could know where a good food source was and go to it every day, uh, if I knew where <laughs> the lions were lurking, uh, that would keep me safe. If I could predict something about the weather, that would keep me safe. So our brain really likes to default to do predictable things. Mm. Now, this is great in the past, but today it can often cause us to sort of zone out. So there's some interesting research um, out of, uh, I think Oxford, might've been Cambridge, uh, where the researchers basically said that when you've done the same thing over and over, your brain kind of goes on this autopilot mode because it can predict everything. So it's like, why be present and focused and in the moment when you can just kind of be lost, right? Going through your routine. So we sort of miss a lot of life, right? 
well, we can go through life like that. So I think the idea of trying to do new things, learn new things that totally shake up a routine is interesting because now all of a sudden I can't predict the future and I've got to learn some new stuff and I've got to do some new stuff. And this is forcing you into presence and focus, right? Because, oh, I can't predict stuff anymore. And I think there's benefits to that. When I was in the Arctic, like I can, I remember every single detail because that was unlike anything I've ever done before. I couldn't tell you what the hell I did two days ago, right? We get back into our normal so lives and things can just sort of go over and over. So it's like the idea of doing something new and challenging. You're going to remember that it makes us uncomfortable because we have thoughts we don't like because we have to be with ourselves. Yes. We have thoughts we don't like. Um, we tend to default towards being stimulated rather than not being stimulated, right? All of a sudden you become bored. That's difficult. It's hard to deal with, you know, boredom, um, to get a little bit into boredom, boredom is this evolutionary discomfort that basically told us whatever you are doing with your time right now, the return on your time invested has worn thin. So in the book, I use the analogy of think of picking berries from a bush. As you pick the really easy to reach berries, it's fun. It's engaging. It's like, oh my God, there's a big one and there's a big one. We're getting so many. But as you pick more and more, all of a sudden the berries become harder to find. They're way back in the bush. So now you're, the return on your time invested isn't as high. So you get bored. And that discomfort tells you go do something else with your time. So you do. You go to the next bush and you do that, right? Um, but nowadays, we have very easy escapes from that discomfort of boredom. So there's one neuroscientist I talked to who put it great. He goes, yeah, but nowadays, like our, our escape from boredom is essentially junk food for the mind a lot of time. What do people do the second they feel bored? They pull out their phone. What do we do when we realize that our screen time is five hours a day and I might have a problem with this thing and I'm going to try and use it less? We go, oh, shit, I can't use my phone. Netflix, <laughs> computer screen, uh, radio, whatever it might be, right? So we have this constant uh, digital stimulation. So the average person spends more than 11 hours a day engaged with digital media. You know, I've often thought about, so we have this, um, what do they call it? The naturalistic fallacy. It's like, because that's how our ancestors were, it must've been good. It must've been better. Yeah. And I often thought like, mm, could they really be like hunting and gathering enough that like that just takes up the whole day? It just seemed like, what do they do with the spare time? Like one thing, look, I get that it can be dangerous and people can waste their time and spiral just scrolling, scrolling the doom scroll or whatever mm -hmm. they call it on Instagram and Twitter. But the thought of like backtracking. So, you know, I look at civilization and I think this seems inevitable. So it's like, well, I don't want to have to walk down to get the water every time. And I don't want to have to brave the bears. And so it's like you start like doing things. It starts with spears and then fire. And then <laughs> yeah. you're like, hey, maybe if we move the TPs together and you know what I mean? So you start moving sort of, I will say, inextricably towards where we are. But I think it's so powerful. There's pathology on both sides. And I, I want to be careful to differentiate between boredom and isolation. But that mechanism by which the brain is searching for some sort of like intellectual echolocation of I send an idea out into the world and it comes back to me. Right. Mm -hmm. I need that return, which is why you're reading labels and like you're trying to get some sort of two way feedback. Right. And without that, you can actually break an adult human psyche by just isolating them for too long. You can actually kill a child by just not loving them, ignoring them. They, it's what's called failure to thrive. Mm -hmm. So it's like this really interesting like the mind needs some of this engagement. It needs the, I mean, like you said, there's a reason that you have a boredom sensation and that it is unpleasant and that it pushes you away from that thing. Right. 
So yeah, it is um, back to, it's a really interesting thing. Back to problem creep. We don't focus on, yeah, fuck. we focus on the one thing, right? And that eats away at our brain. I'll tell you a story that's, I don't know if it's related. You, you can tell me after. So when I have to take all those planes to get up there, right? So when I'm on these, like, whatever they are, 747s from Vegas to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage, I hate flying. Like, I just, I hate flying, right? It's like the seats are too small. Um, the coffee on the plane is is garbage. It's total garbage. And the, you know, the screen in front of you, it's got movies. They're like the shittiest movies ever, right? They're like C-rate <laughs> movies. They're terrible. Um, it's usually way too hot on the plane. Uh, if you want to go to the bathroom, like, you're like this as you go, you know? It's just terrible. So I go up there and I spend a month in the Arctic and I'm freezing cold the entire time. I never have enough food because we pack in like 2000 calories a day and we're burning like four to six, maybe, uh, everything I do takes effort. Even going to the bathroom, I got to like walk out and then, you know, hold a squat for a while and also keep it, bring the gun cause grizzly bears, um, crazy weather, crazy weather. Everything is hard. So when we get back and I'm on that plane back to Vegas, it was heaven <laughs> it was heaven i hadn't sat in a soft chair for a month right i had been bored out of my ever-loving mind for a month i'd gotten some benefits from that but still a month sure. away from stimulation is a long time and you know that c-rate movie damn that was a really that was a really good movie when i had to go to the bathroom like oh i didn't have to have a gun with me right uh, when I wanted water to wash my hands, I hit this button and this hot water, <laughs> hot water came out. And when that hot water hit my hands, it was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Just this shit eating grin. When I wanted food, just bing. Hey, could I have like 19 more bags of pretzels, ma'am? <laughs> you know, coffee was great. So the point I'm trying to make is this. It's like, we don't realize how freaking amazing daily life is. Like it is unbelievable just all this shit that we take for granted in our life every single day we become unsatisfied with it we look for the problems We're like oh this sucks this sucks when in reality it's amazing to be alive today like holy shit hot water coming out of a faucet at thirty thousand feet in this like tube of metal that's gonna take me three thousand miles in like mm -hmm. four hours why do I have pro like why do I have problems in my life? Everything is freaking perfect right now. Like it really is. And I'm not saying that like we don't have larger societal problems that are worth discussing, right? But the reality is is the average person very very few people are going hungry in the United States. Now it's like it's one of those where I'm like we have so much food, people are overweight and they're like, "Yeah, but food insecurity." I'm like, "Okay, show me all those people who died of famine in the US." Like right. they're just not there. You know, and I realize that's controversial. Maybe it's insensitive, but those people are just not there. There's a lot of ways to get food today. And our problem is that we have too much food rather than too little food on a grand scale. I don't have to put an effort to go get my water, to get hot water, to do all these things. My job, I don't have to go toil in a field. I don't have to run down my food. I don't have to do all these things that mm. in the past were very hard and challenging. Like it is amazing to be alive today. And I think we just miss that. So for me, coming back from Alaska, all of a sudden, the fact that you can just boil water on a stove and you have access to like hot water and food, like anything you want, 
you become a lot more grateful for all of that stuff. And when you become grateful for everything you have in your life, like I would argue even people who are below the poverty level in the US now, they really have it good. I mean, most people, how you look at the data, most people who are below the poverty level have air conditioning, they mm -hmm. have cars. Um, a lot of them have assets in different forms, uh, access to food. Like even that, you look at, we are the 99% for the world. You know, even our poorest people are among the top one percenters, you know, in a grand scheme of things in the world. And so I think when we miss that, we miss out on an opportunity to be grateful for stuff that just, I mean, that makes your life a lot better. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And my thing is, you know, if you want to make change, which is amazing, making it from a place of recognizing sort of what we have and how far we've come and that, of course, we can always eke out more gains and make things better. But getting people to understand that you're going to see what you look for. And if you see all the problems, you're going to you're going to or if you look for all the problems, you're going to see all the problems. Mm -hmm. But if you look for the things that are joyful and good and wonderful, then you're going to see that. And that frame of reference will color how you approach change. And if you're looking for ways to elevate humanity and help people and you really want good things and, you know, you're looking at just how incredible what we've created is, then you'll approach the problem solving from one direction. If you're only looking at all the things that have gone wrong and all the slights and all that, then you're just coming at it from a different place. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't. I know you don't intend any of your words to be misconstrued as there, of course, is human suffering and yeah. that the vast majority of human suffering, though, especially in a modern context, is psychological and helping people through, you know, people can be in the conditions that they're in now and thrive emotionally. It's not easy. I'm well aware of that. But once we identify the real problem to solve, then we can actually make progress. So going back to Bhutan, it's like yeah. they don't have it better than people below the poverty line here in America by the sort of objective standards of assets and things that they own and all of that stuff. It is really a question of they've done work at a cultural level that's allowed people to thrive emotionally. And when we wrap our heads around that, that's probably where we have to focus. I think we might actually start making more progress. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so too. hundred percent. Michael, where can people find you? Follow your crazy adventures, ideas, all that good stuff. Yeah, I got a website, eastermichael.com. I'm on Instagram, Michael underscore Easter. And then the book is The Comfort Crisis. It's available, you know, wherever books are sold. So there it is. It was super fun, man. I like chatting. Thank you. So much fun. So as you can see, no matter what world you come from, or no matter whether you live in a first world country or even a third world country, we can all start to appreciate what civilization brings. We can actually start to appreciate what technology brings. And this is a difficult situation for the world that we are living in now. I'm talking globally. As the world expands, what we call progress, it will swallow up certain places of the earth. And I'm not a fan of this, I've got to tell you. you know, even when I speak about World 4 and 5, uh, all the civilization that they bring, each of these worlds, each of the worlds from World 1 all the way through to World 6, and even above, they've both got their dark side and their light side. All worlds have benefits and they all have detriments. They are both solving a problem and they are both creating a problem. And it's almost as if we are stuck between a rock and a hard place. The one thing to lean into is to lean into the mature sides of these worlds, to lean into the developed sides, into the spaces where you know, we actually have the good of everyone at heart. That's where it's really going to start to count. And the big question is, what is it going to take for us to start appreciating civilization? Currently, we're just trying to tear it down. We don't actually see the benefit because it's become so easy to us, it's become so easy for us, it's become commonplace for us. It's the world, because we've grown up in this world, or because we've grown up in society, 
We think that this is the way that it is. This is the way that it's always been. And it hasn't. It hasn't been like this for a very long time. This is why I keep mentioning that we need to look at what we are doing here. Not just we as in the people just listening to this podcast. But I'm talking about each and every human being who lives in a society, who lives in civilization. We really need to take a closer look at this picture and see what we are doing with this thing. And ask ourselves the bigger question. Are we really prepared to do what's necessary to turn this around? Are we really going to put our energies into breaking this down? Which is a very bad idea. I mean, even if I, if I expose you to the other things, having a war is the last thing that we want. It took us centuries to come back from the Dark Ages. We really do not want to go back there again. So the better thing to do is to take what we have and build on it. Make it better. And that's basically what we're all about. This is the whole reason why Be Limitless exists. It's what we do. Until the next episode, thank you so much for listening. And in the next episode, I will investigate and we will go deeper into World 6. And I've had many questions about, what does World 7 look like? I'll also dig into that just because the question's been asked. It wasn't quite where I wanted to go. And I want to wrap these episodes up as quick as possible because I really want to get to a whole lot of other stuff which I really want to share with you. I want to tie this all up and show you how it all comes together and how all of this makes sense of all this chaos, at least from a developmental point of view. Until then, thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you in the next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think that someone would like to enjoy this, please take, I don't know, 22 seconds and just share this message with them. Of course, be sure to send them episode one of this podcast or else they may not orientate themselves with our conversation. Until then, I'll see you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.